when I think about media exposure, whether that's social media or the news or listening to the radio, however it is that you're taking in really the constant information that we're all trying to process. For me, it's why I have those other practices is that then I know how much can I expose myself to the adversities that are around me in a way that actually I can still digest. Do I have those practices? You know, for me, I'm a therapist, whether that's going to supervision and consultation, whether that's going into my own therapy, whether that's sitting on my meditation cushion, right? Do I have the practices that allow me to digest what is happening in my current world? And I think that's, you know, in a way kind of ties in all of those five domains. Do I have the practices that allow me to navigate the inevitable challenges that are going to continue to happen? Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. You may have heard of the idea of post-traumatic growth. Today's episode is on peritraumatic growth, which is a fancy way of talking about how to protect yourself while the trauma is actually happening. The conversation could not be more timely. It is my honor to bring you Dr. Arielle Schwartz, she is an award-winning, best-selling author of books that are right up our alley. She's published on trauma recovery, post-traumatic growth, therapeutic yoga for trauma survivors, EMDR, somatic psychology, and complex PTSD. Her practice is in Boulder, Colorado, where she provides therapy and supervision. I noticed her sharing free, very high-quality content online. She also provides courses on EMDR, somatic therapy, and therapeutic yoga. I'd highly recommend checking out her array of resources at DrArielleSchwartz.com. Okay, let's jump right in. I'm here today with Arielle Schwartz. And, you know, as I've said right before we got on, I have been following your work for some time, really respect your perspective, and you've really dedicated your career to working with trauma in particular. And that is a tough job. It's a, certainly a tough job to sustain, especially these days. So can you just give us a quick background about yourself and how you got interested in this? So I think I came into it for myself first. And I think that's true for so many of us as therapists that we choose a field that resonates for what we need as well. And initially, I studied somatic psychology or body-centered psychotherapy. And I chose that route because I was the kind of person growing up that somaticized everything, held it in my body. I got sick a lot. There was an early divorce in my family. There was a kind of small tease or developmental trauma accumulation that I often refer to as the complex PTSD because there's so many different contributing factors. So that certainly contributed to my early sense of self or lack of sense of self, even my own dissociation. And I didn't have language for all of that, but I knew that for me that certain practices brought me back home to a felt experience and that those practices were primarily body-centered or somatic. So whether it was going to a yoga class or in college, I got introduced to body-mind centering and that those experiences were so formative and influential into who am I as a person that I basically in the 1990s looked at like, where can I get more of this? Where can I study this? And at that time, there were three programs, one of which is here in Boulder, Colorado, and it's how I landed here and went to Naropa University. Yeah, I have some friends there. I love, I love, love the place. Well, that's interesting. So early on, you were aware of your body and the absence of your body at times. And that that's part of what centered you in your interest here. You started out kind of bottom up. Yeah, very much so. And I didn't necessarily go to school to become a trauma therapist. But when you study somatic psychology, there's a certain way in which it just all makes sense. It all kind of, you know, all roads lead to Rome or at some level, all of the spokes of the wheel kind of come into this hub at the center. And for me, what was left unprocessed 
which, you know, it's not like a one-time, one-and-done thing. This was many years of my own internal work, but what was left unprocessed from all of those early life experiences, and then go figure, we live a human life and the life experiences accumulate all along the way, right? Especially in our complex world. I later had experienced several car accidents in my early 20s, and it was a chiropractor that originally suggested that I go try EMDR therapy. And my first experience as a client receiving EMDR therapy was absolutely one of those magic sessions. It was so phenomenal and it connected all of these dots of my own internal processing and it had the somatic element and it had a cognitive element and and it just resonated so deeply for me that I signed up for the training the next week. I was like, I want to do that. We do what works like what we can feel that really works. And you've stuck with it and specifically around trauma. Like how do you hang in there? How do you resource yourself? Like what does this work give you? You know, there's a phrase that I came across several years ago that resonates so deeply for me because first of all, I hit burnout at several points in my own process as, as learning how to do therapy and walk this line and take care of myself and not abandon myself and so forth. And I can share with you a little bit about kind of what I think contributed to the burnout. But this phrase that I came across some years ago that really, really touched me was this term vicarious resilience. We get taught so much about vicarious traumatization and it's very real and compassion fatigue and it's very real. But if we also look at the impact of being a therapist focused on helping others overcome adversity, and what vicarious resilience refers to is the positive impact on helping professionals that comes along with the meaning that is in our work and with really seeing those positive shifts take place. And so I really turned my whole practice around, actually, even before I came across that phrase. But when I bumped up against burnout, a lot of that had to do with my own unprocessed trauma that was coming through the gates as I was working through others and realizing that there were pockets of my own history that were needing more attention. And so, you know, I needed to attend to that. I I needed to give that its full nurturance and therapeutic support within me. And also, I think it really was about a mindset shift in my work into what I call now resilience-informed therapy. And that's a strength-based approach, and it's really attuning to what's already working, what are the existing supports, and even what is the strength behind the symptom? What's the meaning behind the symptom? What was wise about dissociating or what was wise about whatever coping habit one developed. And so that resilience-informed lens really helped, you know, kind of get out of that myopic everything is trauma into what's the broader field that's holding the person. This is so great. I I already am feeling good (laughs) about this because it's so true. And this is part of why I wanted to bring you on is that as you look more and more about trauma and the effect of the on the brain and the body and the intergenerational aspects and all of those things, it can be very heavy and very hard. And then when we add this context that we're all living in, that as therapists, we're catching people managing the stress of some of the national divide. Sometimes I think of it as, you know, that our leaders are our parents in a sense. And so like this idea of trust. It's like, we can't just play on the playground. We have to really keep an eye over here. And then what we're seeing is things that scare us and that polarize us. And that's not a political statement at all, right? Like that's just safety danger. So with that context, being able to have a thread of, boy, how are we managing? How do we help therapists hold people that are experiencing it right now Yet they're also in it. They're, we're right in the middle of it, you know, where COVID is happening, shutdowns are happening, all of the things are happening together. So this thread of hope that we'll be talking more about around a post-traumatic growth, I have to think to say it versus stress, and peritraumatic growth, it really is an actual change of mindset. And I already can feel kind of the hope of it. 
And I think you just named something so important, which is that we as therapists have been trying to process what's been happening in our current world for the last two and a half years, right alongside with our clients. And we might not even be a step ahead sometimes. I mean, I, I remember the week of the shutdown in 2020 of, you know, March 13th or whatever it was that, that week. Right. And you know, literally listening to the news saying, well, this school district just shut down, that one just shut down, this state is responding this way, this is what's happening in this hospital. And hour by hour, right, we were all trying to keep up with the rapidity of what was what we were coming to realize was happening in our world. I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. And to be processing that and still sitting with our clients who are receiving the same information that quickly, not knowing what was going to happen in the next day. Yeah, that's disrupting their treatment, you know, or changing their treatment in some way, you know, so there's also that, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And then like switching to online and adapting to that. And, you know, we have just been right alongside. So to me, there's actually been something very touching about this as well, which is that it's really brought us all to the most human place. We are all humans trying to sort this out. And sometimes even our clients seeing us as humans responding to this right alongside, you know, it's not always that we have all the answers and the expertise. And I think this really exposed that in a very good way. Yes. And it exposed it for us too around, like I had this thing of, there's not even someone I can consult with, right? There's not even a mentor that kind of knows how to guide managing some of these things. So we were thrown right into the deep end along with everybody for sure. One thing I will say that perhaps was one of the best teachers is actually coming from some of my yoga background in that the yoga practice is so often about like stepping into the unknown and embracing and not knowing what's going to come next, whether you call it yoga or whether you call it mindfulness, but that like having any form of practice that allows us to sit with ambiguity became the ground in the groundlessness. Love that. The ground in the groundlessness. So thinking in terms then of the growth and that we're in it, we're still in it. This isn't over. As a matter of fact, a lot of people would say it's getting worse and there, there's signs of increasing threat politically and for many of us. So this idea of, can you just tell us a little bit, what does peritraumatic growth mean? Like, what is that term? Well, I'll start with post-traumatic growth, and then we'll work our way into peritraumatic Sounds growth. Sounds great. Perfect. Right. One of my favorite definitions of post-traumatic growth is really about our belief that we can work through hard stuff and come out with an increased sense of depth or understanding or wisdom or strength or whatever that, that gem on the other side. But it's not that necessarily the hard stuff makes us grow, right? It's what we do with it, how we metabolize it, how we process it, if you want to use that word, although we're not food processors, right? But, you know, but like what it is that we do with that difficult emotion, what support we reach toward or what tools we have to not get stuck in it, but to actually kind of move through that tunnel and come out the other side. Yeah. Cause it's so easy to think in terms of that being an insulting idea or, you know, or a head padding, like, oh, this isn't as bad for you or there's a silver lining or something like that. that yeah, exactly. It's in, in that whole idea of like, you know, bad things happen for a reason. No, right. That's not at all what this is about. It's we are human and we're going to face difficult events in this human life. And how do we cultivate the tools to help us deal with adversity? And what's really tricky, of course, is if you have had adversity in your childhood, if you've had childhood trauma and developmental trauma, is that as a child, our access to resources can be very limited. And so it's more likely that we have kind of pockets that we drop into or islands that we land on of despair, helplessness, powerlessness, hopelessness. So, you know, those are probably the biggest barriers to post-traumatic growth. Are the pockets themselves, you mean? Is landing in that self-state, if you want to think about it that way, or parts language landing in that part of self, and not having access. Sometimes the metaphor I use is we've landed on this island of self, and we don't have any ferries or bridges or flights off the island, that we get stuck in that island of despair. And forget, like, don't even know how to ask for help, to ask for help. Don't see competence 
you know, don't have that body experience of that relief that can come interpersonally on that island. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of, of a clinical example for a moment of working with a woman who we had cultivated, you know, a list of resources. We even wrote them down, right? She had them in her purse. And of course, when she drops into that self-state, the first thing that goes is she forgets to look at the list, right? It's like, it's knowing that we have an adult here now self that actually has a wider range of choices that were available to us when we were a child. Makes me think of internal working models and rewiring. I mean, it is a rewiring that has to happen to help that person remember and have the experience of remembering and it working. Yes, yes. The experience of remembering and it working. And I think we need to have repeated experience of remembering and it working again and again to get that rewiring or that neuroplasticity of that new positive self-state or you know, the bridge built between the island of despair and the mainland. So then post-traumatic growth, what else about that? Like, how is it misunderstood? What are some of the surprises in it? Well, I want to kind of link it back to this idea of peritraumatic growth, and we'll keep kind of unpacking what all of this is. But, you know, if we think about post-traumatic growth, we often think, okay, the event is over the car accident or the flood or the fire, right? I mean, we've I'm living in Boulder, Colorado, and we've had both of those recently. So, you know, it's very fresh, very real. So often we think, okay, there's this event and it ended, and now I can focus on metabolizing and processing that hard stuff and come out the other side. But what are we looking at when we're living in a world where there's two and a half years of chronic exposure to experience of threat and not knowing what's going to happen the next day and whether it's gun violence and sending your kids off to school or whether it's climate change and or being in a parade and a July 4th parade and yes exactly exactly so peritraumatic growth is basically applying some of the same principles that we look at that facilitate post traumatic growth or resilience and applying them in the midst of ongoing exposure to adversity and traumatic stress. Okay, that's great. So I want to go more into that. One of the things around like what causes PTSD are the affect and the associations and our response to the overwhelming event. So what you're saying is if we can resource during it just off the top of your head, are there particular things before we go into the growth that will set someone up to have more trouble? Because this is happening to us. And one of the things with PTSD is, you know, there's often the experience of anger, disgust, sadness, and kind of the core feelings that tend to come up. And you can see people having that where people are moving, people are wanting to burn buildings down. So it's literally happening now. Yeah. You know, when you look at some of the research on resilience, some of the key factors that both, you know, if they're not there, can reduce our resilience to traumatic stress. And if they are there, of course, they promote our resilience. But one of the most important ones is about isolation. The more isolated or the fewer positive, predictable, consistent social sources of nourishment that we have, the greater the barrier to resilience and growth. What was so challenging and in some ways still is so challenging with our pandemic, of course, is that with quarantine and especially for individuals who are living alone and didn't have family and didn't have other people in their immediate environment, the experience of isolation had such a profound negative impact on our resilience during this time. And how does that cross with some of the attachment literature related to how people respond to stress? I mean, you even look at some of the shared neurobiology or shared neurophysiology between social isolation and physical pain. So we know that it's the same parts of the brain that are lighting up when we feel disconnected from others or experience social loss and experience physical pain. And I believe that there's some research out there even about the contributing aspect of that to the worsening response to COVID. Like it's actually a risk factor of how you respond to the virus based on how much social connection you have. I haven't seen that, but it doesn't surprise me because it's associated with cardiac health and so many things. Sometimes, you know, this idea of secure attachment, how is that different than resilience in a way? 
they're so deeply interconnected, aren't they? You know, this idea that somehow I had that felt experience that I could reach out to another person and have a positive response. And so individuals who had the luxury or the the privilege of secure attachment probably could handle the isolation of the pandemic with, with greater resilience because there's this knowing based on my experience in life that other people are trustworthy and that they'll respond in a positive way if I reach out and ask for connection or support. And if we don't have that, if we didn't get that in early childhood, you know, again, if we look at that element of neuroplasticity, what we also recognize is that we can gain the benefits of earned or learned secure attachment throughout our lifespan. So that's where I think therapy often comes in, is that we can provide that predictable, consistent, caring, nurturing relationship for someone, even if they didn't get that in early childhood. When you're talking about the isolation, one of the things I noticed was it was hard to isolate and then we accommodate to it. And then it was hard to not isolate, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm still adjusting to the reopening, right? It's a little scary to go back out there. But that's like such a good, like felt experience though, of if you've never had it, that like you settle into, and this is kind of the way we talk about it on the podcast is like a continue, a colored continuum and blue being on the, when you had to zip up and just not even look for the help. So this really gives us a feel for how that ends up working, that it ends up actually being adaptive, but then sets us up. I think what we're saying here is that it sets us up to have a much more difficult time during the stress because we're not getting that regulation. That's right. We're not getting any co-regulation. And I think for some individuals, and I'm sure you found this as well, is they were like, oh, I love quarantine. Like, I, you know, they were just like, this is how I prefer to live. I actually am relieved that I don't have to go out there into the world. You know, and so it's not necessarily that we want to like put it all into, into one camp. I think for some attachment styles, it actually was a relief to some degree. But I think the challenge is that very often that self-reliant strategy that one had to develop as a child has a burden somewhere to not be able to experience co-regulation with another person. At some point, there's this feeling of the only person I can rely upon is myself. And that's exhausting too. Absolutely. And so then the with the idea of the growth, how does that look during the event? So if we can recognize that to some degree, isolating or becoming passive. So if we look at what are what are the risk factors or the barriers to resilience and growth, one would be isolation. Another one would be passivity, basically a loss of self-efficacy. No matter what I do, it's not going to make a difference. So what's the point of trying? And so if we look at then what facilitates growth, it's this recognition that, okay, I might not be able to change the entire situation. There's a lot that I still don't have control over, but what do I have control over that creates a small positive shift in my hour or in my day or in my week, right? And so I often think about creating this list of those resilience practices that we can build in that optimize your felt experience of yourself and your sense of empowerment each and every day. Yeah. And I imagine many of us are doing a few of those things, not even being aware of it. So by you highlighting it, it's like beginning to really collect them and value them in a new way of, of our, these are our handholds. Right. In the post-traumatic growth guidebook, I kind of speak about the different types of resilience. So we have mental resilience, like the ability to be flexible cognitively, to think about things in, in different manners, to not get stuck in one kind of negative looping experience. We have emotional resilience, which means that there's a capacity to be with our emotions, to recognize that there's health and vulnerability, and that the ability to express what we're feeling actually facilitates congruence and the body-mind love congruence. Like our vagus nerve lights up with congruence and, you know, all of that good stuff. And congruence meaning specifically, say a little bit more about congruence. Oh, good. Yeah. No, I always appreciate those, yeah. those cues, right? <laughs> congruence basically meaning that I am in tune with what I'm feeling. I'm in sync so that what is 
happening on the inside is actually being matched with what I'm expressing on the outside. And incongruence, if we want to look at the opposite, is I'm fine. And everyone's going, you're not fine. right? Like, you don't look fine. You don't sound fine. Right. But when we're congruent, when we're saying, I feel really sad right now about what's happening, or I feel scared, even though it's a difficult emotion, there's actually something that goes, wow, I named what's true. And that's important. Yeah. There's an integrity to it. Yeah. Interesting. So the person saying fine, that is not fine. Fine in general is not the best answer, just by the way, for you (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Right. Like uh, more words usually, but there's a cost to that. So, you know, that's kind of the holding on. And there's a cost within ourselves as a personal cost and there's a social cost. I'll give an example that um, a friend of mine shared with me. He said that his grandson came up to him and he said, Grandpa, why are you so angry? And he said, I'm not angry. And his grandson said, well, tell that to your face. Right. You know, and what's beautiful about this story is he's like, huh, maybe I am. Let me check in with that. Right. Like he received it. But how often does the child who's more right brained see the emotion on the adult in their life, point it out or act it out? And the adult can't receive the message, can't own it or go, huh. So it's that incongruence, of course, that then creates these experiences of lack of safety interpersonally. Well, so, and right into the trauma part, right? That like, I can't believe my lying eyes, that the experience then is to really have to split the knowing of what's happening with the external world. You know what I mean? Like what it takes to get along in the world. Exactly. And and if that happens repeatedly in childhood, one has to adapt in all sorts of ways, either to cut off that knowing, cut off that in, intuiting part of oneself or that right-brained felt experience in order to comply or to belong socially. Or basically one has to adhere to my own truth, but I don't get the benefit of belonging and, and connection. So it creates a real dilemma. And, you know, going back to the kinds of resilience, so there's mental resilience, emotional resilience, there's social resilience. And even that knowing that another person is trustworthy or that there is someone that I can go towards or that I can be a trustworthy other for somebody else. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So those are the different domains of it. There's two more. Okay, great. (laughs) Please keep going. (laughs) So there's physical resilience. And, you know, what we're speaking about there is basically being able to create a robustness of our bodies. And I also often tie in what I refer to as nervous system flexibility, which is that when you study polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve, we recognize that the vagus nerve or what we call vagal tone or vagal efficiency are the physiological markers of resilience. And then the fifth one is spiritual resilience. So we've got that mental resilience or cognitive flexibility, emotional resilience or emotional intelligence, that ability to be with our feelings and to recognize that there's value in in that congruent expression of what's happening inside. We have social resilience, which is, you know, in some ways kind of an outcome of those first two in that ability to receive from others and also give to others in a meaningful way. And we have physical resilience and that nervous system component to that of our autonomic nervous system being able to handle challenge and recover from challenge. And then spiritual resilience, which I often, you know, kind of think about in that category of meaning making. And, you know, how do I create a meaningful life, a purposeful life, one that feels fulfilling at that kind of deepest spiritual level. And whether spirituality is the right word for you or not, it's it's really about, you know, kind of what's that big picture? What's your why? What do you wake up in the morning and look forward to? What motivates you to walk through the world? Kind of some of the existential questions. Yes. Yeah. 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 Who am I? (laughs) Exactly. So then how do you, how do you work with those domains? Then what next? What do we look for there? I think often what I look at is how are we feeding or nourishing those five categories and creating a very personalized answer to those questions 
okay, so if I want to cultivate more of that spiritual resilience, for example, what do I need to bring into my life? For me, it's cultivating a daily meditation practice. For me, it's spending time in nature and just being able to just get this really big step back from the myopic experience of the day-to-day stressors and tap into a beautiful sunset or whatever it is, right? And so, you know, for each person, what is it that allows you to tap into spiritual resilience? You know, whether it's your yoga practice, whether it's going to church, right? Whatever that is, creating, you know, I think a lot of what Viktor Frankl speaks about in terms of, you know, tapping into our values, whether they're creative values or even mindset values, you know, if I can kind of create that mindful pause between stimulus and response, and how do I actually choose my actions in the world that are in alignment with my values? Mm-hmm. That sounds great. And, you know, I hear, I'm thinking of the complication with that too, right now, around that things can be so overwhelming, like the existential questions, do you go in there, the guilt that many people have of looking away and of turning off the news and of not being part of things, kind of the intentional dissociation in a sense, like it's too much for me. And if it's not too much for me, then I get overwhelmed by it. To me, when I think about media exposure, whether that's social media or the news or listening to the radio, however it is that you're taking in really the constant information that we're all trying to process, for me, it's why I have those other practices is that then I know how much can I expose myself to the adversities that are around me in a way that actually I can still digest? Do I have those practices, you know, for me, I'm a therapist, whether that's going to supervision and consultation, whether that's going into my own therapy, whether that's sitting on my meditation cushion, right? Do I have the practices that allow me to digest what is happening in my current world? And I think that's, you know, in a way kind of ties in all of those five domains. Do I have the practices that allow me to navigate the inevitable challenges that are going to continue to happen. Our sponsor today is a product that both Anne and I now use daily. I put a scoop of AG1 in my morning protein smoothly and voila, I've covered all the good things. This one scoop delivers 75 high quality vitamins, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Now, If you're like me, you're thinking, what the heck is an adaptogen? And is that real? (laughs) So I did look it up. It's a plant product, typically herbs and mushrooms that help your body regulate stress. At least that's what it said. So I checked a little further. And indeed, it does appear to be true that there's evidence that adaptogens work on the molecular level. They impact the HPA axis and do indeed help modulate stress. Beyond that, AG1 works to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, focus, and even aging. Like I said, all the good things. I also checked out the parent company, Athletic Greens, and I confirmed that they keep up with the latest science. And based on the kind of continually updated data, they iterate their product to keep improving it. The ingredients are tested by a third party to ensure that what they say is what you get. And I really liked that in 2020, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids and purchase carbon credits to protect old growth rainforests. So based on my experience taking AG1 and my snooping around, I do recommend you check them out at athleticgreens.com backslash therapist uncensored. Be sure and use that link because they will give our listeners a free year supply of vitamin B and free travel packs for you to be able to take the superpower with you on the road. That's athleticgreens.com backslash therapist uncensored. I'm on board totally sounds good. And I like the categories because it helps you think of like, oh, you know, I wasn't even thinking of the physical or the whatever. So part of the idea is that you're cultivating things that in post-traumatic growth, I think that there's a connection there, but we're pulling them in so that you're modulating now while it's happening during the stress. But then I also think, and I don't know how this fits in, but around like class and culture And, you know, some of these things seem like such privileges to be able, even the idea of safety and being able to choose to engage or not to choose to engage, whereas that's not true for many people. 
and part of the, my next thought was, well, sitting on a mat and, you know, having these resources, you know, that is available to everyone, but I guess like the support for that or the cultural support for that. Sure. I think trying to close some of those gaps in terms of access to resource has been a real passion of mine as well. And I know it's a shared passion. In fact, I was kind of reading about, you know, just even kind of how you're donating some of the profits of creating this work, right, as as a way that provides you spiritual meaning. Like, I really get that. I relate to that deeply. And for me, one of my pandemic projects was to take what was always a, a very kind of localized offering. So I've been teaching therapeutic yoga for trauma locally in one of our local yoga studios to kind of smaller, relatively smaller group of students that would come in and do these six-week classes with me. And I knew the great benefit of these classes and the pandemic hit and I wasn't able to teach yoga in person. So I took my classes online, both my general yoga classes and my therapeutic yoga, and I just combined the whole thing and made it available. Donation-based, a lot of those classes ended up also being donations to other causes during this whole time that we've been living through. And the meaning that came for me around creating an accessible trauma-informed yoga class and a YouTube channel around that and made it free or donation-based, now some of those videos have been watched over 10,000 times. And it's so powerful to know that that resource has been made accessible to anyone who has access to a phone or a computer. That is incredible. And that's still up? Oh, yeah. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. Oh, and I'll, I'll keep doing it. I'm still teaching online because the online community became so strong. So I teach live online and people are literally tuning in from around the world and we practice together. And so finding these ways to close those gaps of accessibility and some of what you named also is also perceived accessibility or perceived value within one's community. Like what are you doing going upstairs and getting on your yoga mat, even if it's for 10 minutes when X, Y, Z needs to be done or when we don't have time or we don't have money or whatever the barrier is. Yoga in particular, it, it has that ring of private therapy, right? To be able to afford private therapy, to be, again, culturally, that that's okay to talk about your business outside of your home, all of those things. And I agree with you. I'm totally resonating with the the delight and the meaning of being able to have the accessibility. Our whole podcast is about that, right? Like, so from all over the world, being people being able to learn the science that you wouldn't be able to have access to otherwise, wouldn't know to. And that may be if, if we hone in on one of the aspects of peritraumatic growth during the pandemic, one thing that happened is that information became profoundly widely available more than ever before. Things that were maybe in upper echelon academic settings went on to summits that were free and they're still happening. I have never seen so much free trauma-informed information than these last two and a half years. Oh, that's great. You're recognizing the meaning and you're highlighting that. Like, let's focus on that, right? That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. That's better for our nervous system. Totally. What are we putting the lens of our awareness on, right? And if we're only putting the lens of the awareness on all of the loss and the trauma, and it doesn't mean that we don't want to look at that or attend to that, but if we're only looking and attending to that, that's all we see. So how does mindfulness play into this? You mentioned it earlier. One of my favorite definitions of mindfulness is having choice about where we put our attention, cultivating that capacity. And so I think it really ties into exactly this piece of where am I putting my attention? Am I only putting my attention on all of these signs of threat? Or do I have the ability to actually make a conscious mindful shift to look for signs of connection? signs of safety, if that word resonates, or relative safety in the sense of in this moment, there's no current threat? Can I look towards signs of empowerment? Like whatever the resource might be that I can actually shift the lens of my awareness consciously towards that. It is so tricky because I was just thinking of my personal example is how much I want to, you know, do my door knocking and like be active in change. And I've noticed that I have all these big plans and I keep signing up and letting something happen. And my ambivalence is partly like it's heartbreaking 
to get more engaged and to invest in election or uh, whatever it is, then it's just, that's a very, very painful experience. So again, I'm just, I know that this is true for so many people around like really trying to balance that, like, what can I do? And, you know, for me, my answer to that is I would rather later look back and have a heartbreak (laughs) and be hurting and in it and swinging. And then I also know from a trauma perspective that being active and doing something will typically fare better results than, you know, being in the foxhole and just hoping for the Calvary to come get us, that that is a very bad place, not bad, I don't mean morally bad, but it's a very difficult place on our nervous system versus if we're swinging and we're doing something and we're, whatever that is, and maybe that's being able to get a shower and get outside and get some sunlight in your eyes, that still counts. Right. I can think even about like all of these marches that have happened. And there were certain marches that happened early in the pandemic. And I'm like, I'm with the cause, but I don't feel comfortable going out there yet. You know, it was too early for me with Black Lives Matter and all of that, like those early marches and I was, or the women's march even. And I was just like, I don't feel comfortable being in a crowd of people right now. And so kind of knowing that I'm still standing in solidarity with and that like there's other ways to be of value. And I think, you know, one of the things that came to mind, Sue, when you were just saying about that ambivalence or how do I give or contribute in a way that still feels in alignment with what I feel I can offer right now, my capacity, is kind of looking at this image of water flowing downhill. It's actually a very powerful force, even though it's following the path of least resistance. But that water eventually can carve canyons and can create great change. So when we're kind of looking at ourselves and how it is that we want to take action, what allows us to actually follow something that feels easy? even though it's still some movement. Oh, I love that. That's really, that feels really good. The whole movement isn't on any one particular person. We're just part of a stream. I really, I really like that. So EMDR therapy and somatic psychology interventions to enhance embodiment and trauma treatment. Highly recommend, really great. It's a couple of years old, isn't it? It came out in 2018. <laughs> but it's still really, really mm-hmm. good. And then you've done something since then. Can you tell us about I have, that? I have six books. I have, I have quite a lot out there. I have the Complex PTSD Workbook. And the more recent books, one is the Post-Traumatic Growth Guidebook. And that really is relevant, very relevant to everything we're speaking about here today. And then the most recent book is the Therapeutic Yoga for Trauma. And that is the application of polyvagal theory into yoga for trauma treatment. And uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, Dr. Steve Porges wrote the foreword for it. And I'm really happy it's out there. Well, and speaking of Porges, that's so great that he has blessed your book with his foreword. But I know that he's gotten some very public pushback. And we're getting questions about it as well around the validity of the polyvagal theory. One person kind of said to me, a neurologist kind of said, oh, it's it was just kind of, I don't know, I don't want to go into the detail, but basically that there were some in- inaccuracies. And we definitely have had some listeners ask us, like, what? so what's the latest on that? So what are your thoughts? I think my first thought is that it's really healthy for theories to get pushback. That's kind of the purpose of science is that we have a hypothesis and we run on the best working hypothesis so long as it's valuable. And then it's purposeful that we are meant to challenge an existing hypothesis. That's how science grows. And so I think it's great that we've got people out there that are trying to look at this from different angles and figure out what doesn't work. But here's the thing about it right now is that there is so much about polyvagal theory that works. And so, you know, Dr. Porges has also written a very lengthy response back, uh, for example, to Paul Grossman's challenge. And so we're seeing a dialogue happen between the scientists. And I think that's important. For example, one of the challenges that's come in around polyvagal theory is this kind of idea that somehow the nervous system is dichotomous, that we're either in the sympathetic or we're in the parasympathetic. And this kind of is the hierarchy really a hierarchy 
But I think that polyvagal theory itself is also growing and it's also trying to accommodate what we refer to as these hybrid nervous system states that actually it's not always a reciprocal that we're either in the gas mode or we're in the brakes mode, but that there are nuances inside of that. And so to me, it doesn't really matter whether or not we're calling it polyvagal theory as much as we're understanding what is the state of my nervous system? Do I feel safe or am I in a state of threat? Am I experiencing a degree of threat that leads me to feel shut down? Do I have the skills to navigate my nervous system and to move between different nervous system states? So that the language actually just becomes what is of value, what is of relevance. So when we, when we look at that and its utility, that's where I think we get the best juice. I'm not so much about trying to nitpick the science as much as kind of going for what is valuable to my clients or to myself. What helps me navigate when I feel safe and connected and how does my body respond and give me feedback about that? What is my social engagement system, if you want to use that terminology? And what are the signals that I've left that optimal zone of being? And how do I get back there? I really like that because it's like the two angels arguing on the head of a pen or whatever that is, right? That we can get so in the weeds. I did read his response and I, it was just over my head. And I, I understand a lot of this. You know what I mean? So I've been a little surprised that I couldn't quite wrap my mind around what the challenge was. And I totally agree with what you're saying around the health of pushback. And it just makes us better. And that makes it even more solid. But I also really love what you're saying about our clinical interest as someone who is wanting to grow from this work or is teaching it isn't that, you know, on the head of the pen, the detail of which, you know, what, what neuron is active. Which fiber of the vagus nerve are we talking about? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that instead that this has been very, very helpful yeah. and understandable to people, especially around the complexities. What comes to my mind is kind of two other examples of kind of clinical theories around the brain that have both been challenged, but also continue to have clinical utility. And one is the idea of the triune brain, Paul McLean's idea of the reptilian brain that moves up evolutionarily into our limbic brain and into our neocortex, right? And, you know, you can even do like little Dan Siegel, little fist model here of the brain and its different stages. But when you really look at the science of that, there's a whole lot of challenge to this idea of the triune brain. And yet we all recognize that we can get limbically hijacked or kind of feel like we're in that reptilian brain and we've gone into survival and we flip our lid. Exactly, exactly. So even if it's been clinically challenged, it's still clinically relevant or scientifically challenged, it's still clinically relevant. And the other example that came to mind was the left brain, right brain. I was split. just thinking that. That's right. Totally. Right. But then, you know, so for the longest time it was debunked and it's much more nuanced, but then you see the work of Ian McGilchrist and Jill Bolte-Taylor and you kind of have to go, huh, Really? So maybe this is having its own resurgence as we look at it more deeply. And it's not just that we have a right feeling brain and a left thinking brain, but actually we do have two hemispheres and we have a right thinking and a right feeling brain and we have a left thinking and a left feeling brain. And now we have this whole nother nuanced development out of this. So challenge led to challenge the challenge and to a deeper understanding. And I have a feeling that the same thing is going to continue to happen as we look at the vagus nerve and how it contributes to our sense of self is that we're just going to keep growing and the neuroscience is just going to keep developing. And that's great. We're going to learn more. 10 years from now, we'll have a whole new conversation. That makes me think of the vagus nerve, you know, the popularity of it and all the treatments and all the things that can spin off, which can be like the old right brain left brain division as kind of stereotypical, like a caricature of one another. But I'm totally tracking this and agree with you and really focusing on the clinical utility and the health of the division and the health of the conflict. That's wonderful. So if someone's new to this, which of those would be a good starting place? Well, I think it kind of depends on what it is that you're looking for. If you are a therapist and you're wanting to know how to integrate EMDR and somatic psychology, the book you held up is a fantastic go-to. I also have the complex PTSD treatment manual written for therapists. And then if you are 
a layperson listening to this, looking for tools for your own growth and healing, the post-traumatic growth guidebook and the complex PTSD workbook, if you've grown up with developmental trauma, that workbook is for you. For anyone right now with our pandemic, I think the post-traumatic growth guidebook is going to be a, a nice resource. And then you also had mentioned YouTube and some of the training. Can you tell us how to find that? So it's all on my website and and it should be pretty navigable. Uh, that's a word on the website. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great um, word. I have a blog. There's lots of lots and lots of information in the blog. And and of course, uh, all the books are on there and the trainings that I teach are on there. And your website is? DrArielSchwartz.com. So there you go. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Is there anything else you want to say to this incredible audience that tunes into this kind of life-changing education? Really, like the first thing that comes to my heart is just gratitude for everyone who is walking through this world right now, whether you are in a helping profession or whether you are here navigating your own trauma. I think that it's a courageous act to stay involved. And by listening to this podcast, you're actually nourishing your resilience right now. So that's fantastic. Oh, I think that's a wonderful way to say it. And I think that's true, that as we have other voices coming in and this beautiful hope that you're offering, especially if we don't come from, a, like me, uh, from a naturally secure history, that in the blank of things and in the isolation, we fill in our just our old stuff. So all of the online resources that bring in voices of healing and hope things like that. We really do need to get it generated from outside of our own minds. It's kind of how we started, which is that there is help and it is effective and we just have to reach out for it and let it in and let it work. Thank you. This has been really informative and I know inspiring to so many people and timely. <laughs> Could not have been more timely. It's given me a little shot in the arm. So uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you listeners. And we will see you around the bend. So many people are moved by these conversations and frequently reach out asking how to best support us. There are a few zero or very low cost things you can do to keep this content coming. The first is to simply support our sponsors. Also know that we dedicate half of any proceeds we receive to nonprofits supporting mental health access. So by supporting the sponsors, it's a win-win. The second thing is by taking a moment and pulling up the show wherever you get your podcast to leave us a rating and review. The last idea of supporting us is to simply share the show with anyone you think might benefit. All right. Thank you for listening. Uncensor yourself. Speak your truth. And especially do so to those in power. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 